you, Robin and Jamie, the other instrumentalist. Thank you for leading us in worship. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to First Samuel, chapter twelve, <clears throat> page two thirty-three in your church Bible. We continue our study in the book of First Samuel, and we are seeing how God advances His kingdom through His people, both corporately and individually. Now, the backdrop to 1 Samuel 12 is Saul, the first king of Israel, has been anointed by Samuel. He has actually just led the nation of Israel into a victory over one of their enemies, uh, the Ammonites. And there's lots of rejoicing and there's lots of celebration. And in 1 Samuel 11, uh, 14 and 15, just, just above uh, 1 Samuel 12, it says this, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. And so what Samuel is attempting to do is to help the people of Israel, after this great victory, after they now have their king, to renew their commitment to God and to renew their commitment to his kingdom. And you might think that that would be a really nice little ceremony, kind of like a renewal of vows that I've done for some of you couples, Right? where you come together and we go through the, the vows that you said to uh, you know, each other 10 years before, 20 years ago, etc. But it is, doesn't go quite like that. It is actually a pretty surprising and shocking presentation that Samuel makes to the people of Israel, particularly after this victory that they've had and all the rejoicing. He like, comes in and sort of shocks the people of Israel. Now, I'm sure this has happened to you before. It's about 25 years ago, I remember very vividly, driving up 206 in Princeton, past that little mini-mart, and the dry cleaners there. Uh, I was on my way to take my daughter, Katie, to Donna Nitchen's house. And who doesn't like to go to Donna Nitchen's house? There was some kind of art camp there, and I was going up 206, and it was early in the morning, you know, not too early in the morning, about, about 8.30 in the morning, just drop her off before work. And I make a left-hand turn, and I make a left-hand turn, and this car comes out of nowhere in the left-hand lane trying to pass me in a no-passing zone, slams into my car, I slid off the road, and then the, that car wraps itself around a telephone pole. Needless to say, I was, the whole world changed. I was having a nice time with my daughter, father-daughter time, driving to Donna's, driving and well, once the car stops, you know, I, I check my daughter. Are you okay? Are you okay? And she goes, yes. Uh, can you take me to Donna's? <laughs> you know, okay, okay. So I ran to Donna's house and then did that. And then I come back and, and this car is, uh, my car is, I'm going to have to tow the car. It's, it's really badly damaged. The guy's wrapped himself around the telephone pole. And they're pretty soon, they're turning his car into a convertible to get him out. And then I realized he's a man of the cloth. It's a priest. So I'm like, okay, we got a priest and a prophet. It's like a joke, right? There's a priest and a prophet on the way to work. You know. And of course, I'm thinking, why was this guy going so fast? And then I was thinking, well, it serves him right. Anyway, I got in the police car and I'm thinking, okay, surely the police officer is going to give him the ticket. I mean, he was clearly wrong. And the, and the police officer is driving back to the, to the police station with me and says, you know, I'm not sure what to do about giving you a ticket. I'm afraid that God will be mad at me no matter who I give the ticket to. I said, how is that? That doesn't sound right to me theologically. <laughs> he says, well, if I give it to the priest, that's not good. But if I give it to you, that won't be good. I said, trust me, do the right thing. God will be happy with you. 
Besides, you give it to the priest, he can go to confession. I mean, he'll be fine, right? Anyway, he did give the ticket to the priest, and the priest pled guilty. And life went on. But in that moment, sort of my life flashed before my eyes. I thought, I, I almost lost my daughter and myself. In one instant, the world changed. I hope that First Samuel 12 has a similar effect on you. Because Samuel is going to drop some major truth bombs on the people of God. And we, reading this uh, hundreds and hundreds of years later, would do well to take a look at what Samuel does here in calling the people of God, Israel, to a renewed commitment to God and his kingdom. Now, it's interesting, just before we get into the text, I want to show you at the end of 1 Samuel 12, as Samuel summarizing his attempt as sort of a renewal ceremony for Israel and God and Israel and the kingdom. In verse 24, at the very end of the chapter, he says these, he makes three admonitions. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. This is Samuel's summary statement to the nation, summarizing everything that comes in 1 Samuel 12. And it's interesting in these three admonitions, while certainly he's admonishing the people to do things, most of it is focused on God. When it says, consider what great things he has done for you, yes, that's something you need to do, but the person you're thinking about is God and the things he has done primarily. It's more about what God has done, less about what you do, of course. When it says, fear the Lord, again, we're talking about fear the Lord. Why would you fear the Lord? Well, you fear the Lord because of who God is. So again, that that admonition, yes, it's a command, but it's focused on who God is and understanding how he operates that forms the response. And then sandwiched in the middle is serve the Lord. And certainly that's what we are called to do. But I would submit to you that what Samuel does in this renewal ceremony, so to speak, is he's calling us to reflect more carefully on who God is and what he has done in order for them to renew their commitment to God and his kingdom. And this morning, I want us to come to come to grips with God in two ways. We need to come to God and, and, and is looking at this passage, like Israel, the church of Jesus Christ here at Stonehill, as individuals and certainly corporately, we need to come to grips with God in two specific ways. Let's look at the first way. Beginning in verse six, we'll see uh, this first way that God, through Samuel, is warning his people and encouraging his people and challenging his people to get a grip about verse six, and and I'll summarize this first point in just a second, but I want you to see verse six. He says, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron, uh, brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. So Samuel begins to recount for the people of Israel what God has done for the people of God. 
And then in verse 9, he says this, but they forgot the Lord their God. In other words, even after being supernaturally rescued out of Egypt as slaves, they forget the Lord their God, and God sells them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. And we've served the Baals and Ashtaroths. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. What Samuel begins to do in this chapter is he begins to show Israel their sin. He begins to say, listen, I rescued you out of Egypt. I supernaturally delivered you out of Egypt. And what did you do? Did you thank me? No, you followed after other gods. The gods who had nothing to do with your original deliverance, the God who delivered you out, you forsake me, you forget me, and you begin to worship these other gods that have no power. What Samuel is doing and what we need to do in coming to grips with God, this first way of coming to grips with God, we need to come to grips with God and our sin. That's what Samuel's doing And the first way of helping Israel renew their commitment to God and his kingdom, he's reminding them of their sin. He's pointing it out historically. He's reminding them they forgot God. He's reminding them they followed after these worthless idols. Verse 12, he continues this. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was king. In other words, he reminds them, not that long ago, the Ammonites were coming, you got scared, you didn't trust me to be your king, you needed a human entity to be the king. We looked at that last week. They began to trust a human entity rather than God himself to bring deliverance. And verse 16, now this is the shocking development here in this sermon, so to speak, from Samuel. Verse 16, he says, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? Now, that meant it was probably May or June in Israel at the time. This was the time when the wheat would be harvested. This was the dry season. Not much rain in Israel at this time. And it was good that there was not much rain at this time because you needed to harvest the wheat. It was good in in January, February, March, April have rain when the wheat was growing, but not when you harvest. A hard rain can tear the, the stalks of the wheat down so that you lose the harvest. So he says, is it not wheat harvest today? And then Samuel says, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel calls upon the Lord and the Lord sends thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Wow. Every once in a while, I wish I could do that. Samuel gives a physical demonstration of God's opposition to sin. It's not the time that you would expect a storm. It was the dry season. It would would have been very unlikely. And Samuel, on command, prays to God and says, God, send thunder and rain as a demonstration that you are angry and righteously and appropriately angry at God's people for their sin. Not only in the past, but in their recent uh, dalliance with a human entity, the king, rather than trust me. And it happens. 
Notice the people's response. The people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. In verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servant to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. The people of God, Israel, say, pray for us, Samuel, that we may not die. See, in a very real sense, the people get it. They actually come to grips with God and their sin. They see that God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, the true God, is always opposed to sin all the time. He's not capricious. He's opposed to sin. He's opposed to injustice. He's opposed to sin. He's opposed to when people are harmed. He's opposed, he's opposed to, to all the disparities and injustices in this world. And he is opposed to sin. And he's always that way because he is a God who cares deeply about sin because he is holy and righteous and perfect. Now, the question is for us, is that the God that you're coming to grips with these days? Coming to grips with God in your sin? I mean, it's not that, uh, I would say it's not that culturally, culturally accepted these days in some ways. I don't know what it is about me going to the pool to swim, but when people find out I'm a pastor, I get all kinds of, of deep theological conversations when I'm simply trying to swim. And these people are constantly talking about it. And now it's interesting. Most of them are not, they don't even believe in God. So some of them I want to say, listen, you don't believe in God. You're not going to listen to me. Let me swim, okay? But they want to talk to me. And, And what's interesting is while they don't believe in God, they kind of wish there was a God who eradicated people they don't seem to like too much. These same people who don't believe in God would like God to do something about the political leaders they don't like, the injustices that they see, the, all kinds of things. I mean, I, it's unbelievable. I have heard political leaders ripped into, business leaders ripped into. I mean, it's equal opportunity ripping into people, and they certainly seem to want a God who will deal with injustice. But what's interesting... Is there, they want a God, kind of, who will do their bidding and bring justice to the people they think they need to bring justice to, but they don't want to have a God who's going to bring justice to them. And we don't like that either, do we? If we're honest. You see, this is what the people of God here have to come to grips with. They, they, they have a God who demonstrates his righteous opposition to their sin, and they're praying, Lord, I mean, Samuel, please pray for us that we may not die. When's the last time you, you thought about that? See, in a very real sense, if we truly understood who God is and came to grips with God and, and our sin... We would know that, well, as believers in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God was put on Jesus for our sin because our sins were put on Jesus. And so God's wrath went to Jesus instead of us. But, but in, in spite of that, he, even, even not counting that, if we know that, that God is opposed to sin at all times and that we continue to be involved in idolatry of all kinds and sin, The fact that you are alive and in this worship service this morning is a sign of God's mercy to you that you are not getting what your sins deserve. 
I've said this before. One of the things you probably ought to say to everyone you meet this week, when someone says, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. Now, we actually believe this in a secular way, okay? We sort of use these kind of comparison. Hey, you know, if you really got what you deserve, life would be a lot worse for you. We do this all the time. Parents do this with their kids. My parents did it. We were serving me vegetables. I didn't want to eat the vegetables. I didn't like the frozen peas or the lima beans or the Brussels sprouts. These are all evidences of the fall, Genesis 3, okay? And my parents would always say, you know, if you were born somewhere else, you know, if you lived in another country, you'd kill for these. You, you, You would be so happy. You would be so grateful. Look at you, you ungrateful. We do it all the time. Now, I don't want you to feel bad about this, but I know this is hard because if I have to talk about my work not being good, well, we all know whose fault that is. (laughs) (laughs) So I came home after work, and it wasn't because of you all, but it is true. As an elder, as a pastor, we want you to become more like Jesus Christ. And look at you. (laughs) It's... It's depressing, okay? And, and a lot of you, honestly, are, you're going through difficult things. And I know about these things, and I'm burdened by it. So I came home, and I wasn't feeling so great about life. Not a lot of people like Jesus. None of us, really. I mean, including me. And a lot of people with a lot of burdens. So I wasn't in a great mood. I came home, and I just picked up this book I'm reading called The USS Indianapolis. It's a great book. It's about this cruiser. Now, in World War II, there were destroyers, little boats, who acted as submarine screen for the larger ships. Battleships were the big, big ships. Carriers were big. Cruisers was kind of in the middle. And the USS Indianapolis was a cruiser in World War II. And at the end of World War II, the Indianapolis was tasked with taking the components of the atomic bomb to Tianan, a little island off the coast of Japan, where it would be taken up in the Enola Gay and dropped on Hiroshima. I don't want to talk about the ethics of nuclear war. That's a different sermon. But I was reading this book, and, and, and because this was a top-secret mission, they, they were under radio silence, the Indianapolis. They were not given a destroyer escort because they didn't want to cause any attention to this boat. They were sort of off the radar, so to speak, and not tracked like other boats ships would have been at the end of World War II. So they delivered the components, and on their way back to another port, the same rules applied. No destroyer escorts. Nobody really knew where they were because they weren't being tracked. Strict radio silence. That's where they were, and all of a sudden, they they just went right into uh, an enemy submarine's path. Two torpedoes in, the ship sinks in 30 minutes. 1,200 people on that boat, 1,200 men. 300 were killed in the immediate explosion of the torpedoes. And now there are 900 people in the water. Many of them just with a life vest in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And nobody knows they're sunk. Nobody's looking for them. They don't have the escorts that would normally pick them up. They're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And at that moment, as I'm reading this book, I felt better about you. I mean, my job. I didn't feel better about you. I feel better about my job. I'm not in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. These guys would be in the Pacific Ocean for four days. No water, many of them. No food. 
Many of them would drink the ocean and then die quickly because of that. And then one night after they'd been in the ocean for 36 hours, sharks show up. And when the sharks showed up, I felt a lot better about my work. I just felt better about my day. I was like, I'm not in the Pacific Ocean. There's no sharks. This is good. I can get a glass of water. I felt better. We do that. But why don't we make that connection spiritually? Because if God gave you what you deserved today, okay? I know, I know we're believers in Jesus Christ. We know that God's wrath was put on Jesus. And but if you got what you actually deserved for all of the things you've thought about, all of the things you've said behind people's backs, to their face, all the things you've done, all the things you didn't do that you should have done, all of the ways in which you violated God's standard of holiness, if you got what you deserved, you wouldn't be here. Do you really believe that? Because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says, apart from God, no one seeks after God. No one even understands God. No one does good, not even one. And what Samuel does for the people of Israel, what this text ought to do for us, the church of Jesus Christ today, is the one way, one of the first way of God that we need to get a handle on is we need to come to grips with God and our sin. It's called the fear of the Lord. Now, if that's all the way, if that's all you take from this sermon, I'm really sorry. Because that's a depressing message. You, you got to see the second way of God that, that Samuel delineates. And that's what we'll do here. The second way of God, and that is this. We must come to grips with God and his grace. Let's go back up to verse 6 in Samuel. Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he has performed for you. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. He reminds them they were in slavery. How did God deliver him? Ten plagues on Egypt. The last plague was, the, was Passover, right? Where they put the blood of, of the lamb on the doorpost and the angel of death came out. And if he saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over the house. And through many, 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 many Egyptian homes, there was no blood on those doorposts and the firstborn was taken. A picture of the ultimate expression of God's grace with Jesus, who is our Passover. Verse 11, the people fall into idolatry and now they're uh, under siege by, by Sisera and the, and the Philistines and the king of Moab. Verse 11, and the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. Samuel is reminding them, you disobeyed, you called out and I delivered you. I sent these four judges to deliver you out of the problems that you got yourself into because of your sin. And back up to verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, after the thunder and the rain that, that Samuel had called out from heaven. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. 
yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. In other words, Samuel said, yes, you've done all this evil, but God's going to be gracious to you. You've made a mess of things, but, but I will be gracious to you. Don't fear. And of course, if you go down to verse 13, uh, this is after they, they, they went for a king, even though the Lord was their king. Verse 13 says, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. In spite of their disobedience, God will give them a king and begin to work with God's people in spite of the fact that the original request was deeply flawed. This is God's grace. And you've got to get a handle on this. You can't get, just get a handle on your sin. You got to get a handle on, on your sin and, and, and God and, and your sin, but a handle on God and his grace. Back up to verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And then notice verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Notice what God says. In spite of all your sin, you need to fear God. But in spite of all your sin, I will not forsake you because I was pleased to make you my people. I was pleased to put my name on you. And therefore, I will not forsake you. We see in other places in the Old Testament that, that God chose Israel, not because they were a great nation, not because they were a powerful nation, not because they had many people. He chose them and set his love on them by sheer grace. And that's what he does with us as believers. He, he brings us into his church by grace. The Bible says that before you were ever born, he set his love on you. He, he, he didn't look around and say, hey, Troxel, that, that, that guy, that's a winner. No, he set his love on me before I was even born. And then he had to, to when I was born, he had to, to woo me and draw me by the spirit. I couldn't even come to God on my own. He had to open my heart to see my sin and see the gospel. And then he, he, he carries me through by his grace, but it's all of grace. You have to come to grips with that. We are the church here at Stone Hill, not because we're the best people. I mean, I like you. I really do. But we're not, we, God didn't choose us because we're great. God didn't choose us because we're smarter than everybody. We can think that because we live in Princeton, but we, that's not why he chose us. He didn't choose us because we, were, we had it all together. He chose us before we were never born, knowing full well how rebellious we'd be. And he still set his love on us and then made sure by his grace in every way that he would bring us to himself and put us together with God's people. Not only now, but one day we'll enjoy him forever. Is that incredible? Now, before we celebrate communion, I want to try to put these two things together. If we're going to be renewed, as Samuel has sort of led the nation of Israel, you've got to do, you sort of need to think about God in two ways. Number one, see your sin, see God in your sin, but see God in his grace. I was 13 years old. I had been a Christian since I was about seven years old. So I've been walking with the Lord for six years. 
I wasn't doing anything real terribly wrong. I was in a Christian school, went to church. My dad was a pastor. I was, I was forced to go to church. You know, I was listening to sermons, but I, I wasn't a bad kid. But I have to say that my commitment to Christ was sort of going through the motions. Not that passionate. And there were a lot of competing things in my mind, right? I was really into my athletics. I was really into academics. I was really into my trumpet. I, I, you know, I was 13, so girls were probably part of that equation. And probably there were all kinds of distractions for me. That's where I was. Knew the Lord, kind of going through the motions, a little bit of lethargy, some apathy. And so my varsity baseball coach of our of our, uh, our school invited the eighth graders to come to his house as sort of a get ready to be freshman. And so I, I was really excited to go. This guy, this varsity baseball, he was a legend, okay? He was the godliest guy I knew. He was, he was a hard coach to play for, but he never raised his voice. He never yelled at umpires. He never yelled at his players. He was just a godly guy. He, he took control of the classroom. I had a couple classes with him. Uh, we, we feared him. But not because he yelled at us, but he just had that authority. And he seemed like a really godly man. And so I was really happy to go to his house. We played games. We had barbecue. And then I didn't really realize this was going to happen, but he, 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 he said I, he wanted to give a devotion. And so gave a devotion. I was listening because I respected him. Again, I thought he was a godly guy, and I wanted to play baseball for him. That's probably why I went to the party. I was hoping to make the baseball team as a freshman. And then he proceeded to lead us in communion. So here this baseball coach, he's about 6'2", all muscle, you know, guy I deeply respected. He leads us in this devotional. He leads us to take the, the, the bread. And then when he had the cup in his hand, and he started to say this cup is a new covenant in my blood which was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins when he said the forgiveness of your sins his voice cracked like whoa then he started to cry and I was like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. this is the rock here man we can't and he probably I mean, it felt like 30 minutes it probably was only 5 minutes but this man was overcome with what Jesus Christ had done to save him from his sin. I remember him holding the cup and he, he looked at us and he said, I can't believe Jesus would die for me. For all the ways I've, I've wandered for him. I can't believe that he chose to die in my place. And he's weeping, he's weeping. And pretty soon all of us were weeping. 45 people in my class were just weeping. Hearing this man, this godly man, deeply moved by his sin and deeply grateful for the grace that God had given him. And in that moment, as I remember taking the cup, I felt like in a, a new way, God had helped me see the ugliness of my sin as a 13-year-old. But also at the same time, the greatness of God's grace in his deliverance for me. And what is interesting about that event is that a number of my classmates, as we graduated four years later, we often looked back at that moment and said that was the beginning of four years of 
pretty significant revival for our class of 51 people for four years. And how did that happen? Well, just did what the Bible says, right? What my coach did was what Samuel did. He had to confront the people of God with their sin. They needed to see their sin. They needed to see God in their sin. That's fearing God. They also needed to be reminded of the wonderful things, the great things God had done for them. And he had to remind them of that. And when you have a believer who understands the depth of their sin, but the beauty of what God has done for them, you will have a person who will serve the Lord faithfully. Because serving the Lord faithfully, which Samuel calls people of Israel to do, and by us by extension, serving the Lord can only happen robustly when it is motivated, empowered, and directed by the grace of God. And you're never going to understand the grace of God unless you understand the fullness of what your sins deserve. And once you understand the fullness of what your sins deserve and you see the grace of Jesus Christ, that in and of itself will lend itself to a robust, sacrificial life lived out to the glory of Christ and his kingdom. So this afternoon, as you take the bread and you take the cup, when you have that bread, we will all partake of this together. The the communion is available to anyone who has trusted Christ as your Savior. If you haven't trusted Christ, I encourage you just to pass it on. Spend that time in prayer, seeking God. But when you take that bread, don't be afraid to think deeply about your sin and what it deserves. When you drink the cup, be reminded that whatever your sin was, and no matter what your sins deserve, Jesus Christ took that for you in your place. And you have the full forgiveness of sins because of the shed blood of Christ. And when you think about those two things and you live in light of those two things, you will be a person who will be renewed in your commitment to Christ and his kingdom. Let's pray. Servers, can you come forward as we pray? Lord Jesus, we need to see our sin. We need to not be afraid to look at our sin. We need to have the humility to look at our sin, to see what it deserves. To know that what we are dealing with in the Bible, the true God, the God of the Bible, is a God who is holy, righteous, perfect who opposes sin all the time, consistently. And Lord, when we see that, uh, by God's grace, we we want it to motivate us to look at what God did for us, to consider the great things he's done for us. So help us to do that as well. Thank you that you have not left us to our own sin, but you provided a way out by your grace. Help us to grab a hold of these two realities. And as we do it more comprehensively, more consistently, may it issue out in deep and profound service and sacrifice for Christ and his kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.